Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been doing a uh, series that I was hoping to end today, but I won't because uh, this verse that we're going to look at is way too good to do that in less time than... Anyways, uh, getting confused, but uh, we've been doing a series on the Beatitudes, and uh, I trust and pray it's been a good series for you to hear, and the Beatitudes are arguably one of the most uh, well-known parts of the entire Bible. Uh, some of the best-known words that Jesus Christ ever said, and uh, we've been taking a quick look at those. Um, let us look at uh, Matthew chapter 5 uh, before we jump in and have a few comments on the ones we already looked at. <coughs> now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the, are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. We start out by looking at the first three in one week. Um, I should have probably broken those down, but uh, uh, just a quick reminder for those of us who have heard this, and if you're new, we want to get you caught up to speed a little bit. And it's important when you're considering the Beatitudes to take them in order, because these aren't just random uh, statements that Jesus, you know, picked up out of the sky and then threw together. He has an order. He has a logic to this. And, and when you look at the first ones, he, he says... Uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. And what he's saying there is if you recognize that your problems are beyond you, if you recognize that, that you have a sin problem and you can't fix this problem that you have, you're blessed. Because when you realize that your problems are beyond you, that you and I are what's wrong with this universe, you and I are what's wrong with this world, and we can't fix ourselves, no amount of of self-help, no amount of Oprah, no amount of Dr. Phil is going to fix us, then we understand that we next need to mourn this. That's what he says next. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And we mourn the fact that our deepest problem is a spiritual problem, that we are sinful and we are separated from God. And we begin to mourn this in our hearts. And then... Uh, next he says, uh, blessed are the meek. And the meek are those who are humble enough to see this, that these two things are true about them, that their problems are beyond them. It takes a certain amount of humility to admit that, doesn't it? Because uh, if anything, none of us like to admit we have problems, and we definitely don't like to admit we have problems we can't solve or that we can't find a solution for. And this is saying that those who are meek, those who are humble, will inherit the earth. That those who are able to humble themselves and cry out for God's help. And that's what you see uh, in verse 4, or excuse me, the, the, the fourth beatitude where he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, the first three talk about our need. We are poor in spirit. We mourn. We're, we are torn up. We grieve the fact that we are, are broken and in need of help. 
And we humble ourselves and ask for that help. And, and the fourth one is, is telling us the solution. The solution to our need is that we, we need righteousness. We need right relationship with God. And not just with God, although that's of supreme importance, we need right relationships with each other. And, and we get that through hungering and thirsting. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, as Jesus, put, Jesus puts it. And he says, they will be filled. If you hunger and thirst, if this need that you've experienced in the first three drives you to hungering and thirsting for God, for his righteousness, you will be filled. And then the next Beatitudes tell us what this filledness looks like. What it looks like when we are filled with righteousness. The first one is, blessed are the merciful. For they will show mercy. You see, that corresponds with the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Because if you recognize you're poor in spirit. And you need mercy. Because your problems are greater than you. And you're filled with righteousness. You realize that God's mercy is what has fixed you. And since you're fixed. And since you're fixed through mercy. You, can only, you, can only, you can't help but be a merciful person. And the one that we're going to consider today, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That corresponds with the second one, blessed are those who mourn, because we mourn in our hearts. We mourn with all of our being, don't we? You ever lost somebody? I remember my grandpa Steiger passed away. And I remember uh, driving near uh, his grave one time, the cemetery that he's buried in, and and it was only a few weeks after he had passed. And I just broke down and wept. I was at a stoplight. It was a little dangerous. But uh, it was my whole being involved. It just hit me out of the blue. I didn't expect it. I wasn't even hardly even considering him or thinking about him. And just this wave of emotion overtook my being. And that's what happens when we mourn. It just comes from deep within us. And Jesus says here, blessed are those who are pure in heart. Blessed are those who are deep down inside of them pure. I mean, when we look at this, uh, this passage and when we look at this verse, there's a couple words that we have to define, aren't there? I mean, one is heart, uh, because those of you in the medical field think, well, that's the thing that's beaten and keeping you alive in there. And you know that that's not what we're talking about because you've heard rock and roll songs that talk about, I love you with all my heart. And you know, okay, that has nothing to do with the organ that's beating and keeping you alive. That must have something to do with something else. And that must mean emotions. And when we often talk of heart in our culture, we're talking about emotions. We're talking about um, Valentine's Day, right? Because they have those pictures of hearts. Be fascinating if Hallmark ever took a picture of a real heart and stuck it on a Valentine card. It'd be kind of weird and gross, but I'd probably buy it because it'd be funny. Uh, <laughs> subvert the dominant paradigm is all that I always say. And so you would have this heart, and we think of emotions, we think of love, but that's not at all what Jesus thought of when he said heart. What Jesus thought of when he said heart was 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 you was your, your being, who you are, everything about you, is what Jesus thought of when he said your heart. 
the, the seat of your personality, the, the, the very essence of who you are. Your mind, your intellect, your volition, your will, your emotions, your spirit, all of that. When Jesus said your heart, he meant you, me, all of us, everything about us. That's what Jesus means when he says heart, the center of our personality. It is all of you, everything about you, the total you, your heart. And then he says, blessed are those who are pure there. (laughs) Blessed are those, I mean, who is this that he's talking about? Let's see a raise of hands. Anybody want to? Because if you raise your hand quickly, people will be like, you're not pure. I saw you that one time. Remember that time? <laughs> right? I mean, nobody's going to venture. I mean, unless you're like a brand new visitor and you've never been here before, you might have a chance. <laughs> right? But deep down inside of us, we all know something's busted. Something's wrong. And we're far from pure. Now, uh, in order to understand what we mean by pure, what does pure mean? How does Jesus understand this word? And Bible scholars uh, agree that there's kind of two meanings to this word pure in this passage. The first is without hypocrisy. Without hypocrisy or or the idea of, of singular. Like you're sincere. You're, you're, there, there's nothing, uh, there's no dualness about you. There's, there's, no, there's no double life that you're living. Uh, there's, no, there's no secrets. There's no, you're just you. It, 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 you're pure. You're whole. You're a singularity. It, it's like you're, everything about you, there's without a fold. It, 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 it's clean. It, it's, it's out in the open. Anybody want to jump into that pool? You see, when Jesus talks about blessed are those who are pure, he's referencing a whole discussion about purity and heart in the Old Testament. And a lot of times in the Old Testament, when he talks about purity of heart, it talks about idolatry. It talks about idolatry and worshiping false gods. It talks about this hypocrisy that on one hand we are, we, 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 we are all about worshiping God. We're all about worshiping Yahweh. But on the other hand, we're, we're hedging our bets because there might be something better. There might be someone better. There might be something that will give me more satisfaction in life than God. And so I'm just going to kind of, eh, just in case. In fact, there's this passage, Psalm 86. It says this. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. It's a prayer by King David. And it's this idea that our hearts are divided. That that our loyalties are divided. That we we struggle with being pure of heart. We struggle with being, uh, we, we struggle with not being a hypocrite. We struggle with wanting to worship things other than God. And David sees that in himself and he prays, give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. See, that's at the, that's at the heart, <laughs> it's at the core of being pure in heart, being undivided, without hypocrisy. Uh, Psalm 24 talks about 
um, idols in the Old Testament. It says this. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart, who do not put their trust in an idol or swear by a false god. You see, those who can, who can be before God, those who, in a sense, can see God, are those who are pure of heart, who don't have an idol, who, who, who don't worship other gods. Now you think, well, you know, I haven't seen an idol in a long time. In fact, my family doesn't have any in our home. Uh, when I read about the idols in the Old Testament, it didn't make any sense. I mean, why would you set up a pole in your backyard and go worship it? Why would you shape out, out of clay these little images and travel with them and pray to them? That doesn't make any sense. That's just a bizarre thing. And, and in our day and age, we don't have those kind of idols. We have different kinds of idols. You see, an idol is anything that we we trust for our self-worth, for our ultimate value. Uh, anything that we, we look to to save us, to, to protect us, to keep us safe. Anything we look to to, to validate us or, or to tell us, I'm okay. For some of us, it's a bank account. Because we can, we can get on quick and, and we can get into our checkbook and we look at that and we're like, oh yeah, I'm okay. I'm all right. I'm okay. I mean, look how much I got. I'm feeling better about myself. I'm safe. I'm secure. For some of us, it, it, it's our standing in community and what people think about us and what people say about us. And so during Alumni Weekend, it's a great weekend for those folks who feel this way because people come back to town and they validate us in our standing and they recognize us and, and we're told, boy, you're just something, aren't you? And we look for that. And what we are trusting in is those people to validate us and to make us feel better about ourselves and to tell us we're somebody. And really, the person that should tell us we're somebody is God. And instead, we are looking for that in others, and that's an idol. For some of us, it's, 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 it's trying to find pleasure in this life. That pleasure has become the idol. And so we look for that in sex, or, or we look for it in drugs, or we look for it in alcohol, or we, we look for it in, in places that we exalt to a point that it becomes destructive in our lives. But we're looking for that pleasure. We're looking because we're hungering and thirsting for something. The scriptures here say that if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, that's, that's who you're supposed to hunger and thirst for, Christ. An idol is what you are hungering and thirsting for above all else. What you're looking for to save you, to validate you, to, to define you. And honestly, the human heart, as Tim Keller has said, is an is a idol machine. We just churn out idols. They can be spouses or children or a church or a building or a town, or a community, or a bank account, anything, a career. This psalm says, who can go up to the mountain of the Lord? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart, who do not put their trust in an idol or swear by a false god. Now, remember, this is the result of hungry and thirsting for righteousness, right? This 
verse, if we keep it in order, which is important, is the result of being filled with God's righteousness. I'll get back to that in a minute because that's really important to keep it this way. A second meaning of a pure heart. The first one that we saw is is to to be without hypocrisy, to to be singular or whole. The second understanding of of purity from the New Testament is to be cleansed or without defilement, to, to be perfect or spotless. It's amazing how quickly stuff in this world gets dirty, right? Anybody ever bought a new carpet before? One of my friends, he's a pastor in Denver, and their church got new carpet. And the first Sunday, the first sermon, he got up in front of the church and he took a cup of coffee and he poured it out right in front of everybody on the new carpet. And he said, well, we got that over with. (laughs) He just got her done. Get that first stain in because it's going to happen. Because nothing in this life remains spotless. And by the way, it wasn't white carpet or anything, but you know, kind of like ours, and it shows coffee stains. Nothing remains spotless in this world. Moms, you know that, right? I mean, Dave can have a new t shirt on at eight, and it's used by eight ten. You know, it's just the way he rolls. It's amazing. It's not Marnie's fault, it's just who Dave is. The kid is far from spotless. Now, does that say anything about his heart? Well, you know, before you judge him, let's look at your clothing, huh? <laughs> I mean, there, there's none of us who are spotless. We understand that. We know that about ourselves. And if we don't know that about ourselves, we sure can see it in other people. I mean, this is one of those things. Did you hear what they did? Did you see what's going on with them? Can you believe that? I mean, sometimes it's easier to see that others aren't pure in heart than it is to see how unpure we are. Have you ever met a person who's spotless, pure in heart, who's perfect? My guess is no. None of us have. And if you've never met anybody like that, my guess is you're not like that either. None of us are perfect or spotless. Who is Jesus talking about in this verse? Who are these blessed people? Now, I hope you're not terribly bummed out as you listen to this message. I mean, at some level, I hope you are, because if purity of heart is not true of you, then you have a problem. If purity of heart is not true of you, then you are not a citizen of the king. You are not in the kingdom. It's according to Jesus is what he says. Now, I want us to get, have a test of what this looks like. But before I do that, uh, how do we get a pure heart? King David in a psalm where he, he prayed because he recognized how impure his heart was. You see, there's this whole story about King David. He had created an idol out of a woman. Her name was Bathsheba. He was out one day uh, on, uh, out on top of his castle, wandering around. He was supposed to be at war, because that's where he was supposed to be that day. He was, he was supposed to be with the troops, and he wasn't. He stayed back in Jerusalem. He, you know, he was kind of, he was resting on his laurels, I guess you could say. 
And he goes outside and he's walking around and this young lady named Bathsheba was sunbathing out on top of her house. Naked. And King David sees her and he is struck by how beautiful she is and he has her brought to his castle and he sleeps with her. And some time passes by and she says, David, I'm pregnant. And King David is worried about this scandal because her husband is Uriah the Hittite who is at the front lines fighting for King David. He is in the army. He's where he's supposed to be. King David's not where he's supposed to be. And he sends word, send Uriah home to me. So Uriah comes home and David meets with him and he says, hey, why don't you go home, enjoy being home, sleep with your wife, drink some wine, have a good time. Go home, we'll see you. Uriah goes and he says, how can I enjoy life's pleasures while my unit, my men are at the front lines? And he refuses to go home. He sleeps actually at the gate. And he does this for a couple nights and David's mad. He's frustrated because Uriah's not getting it. So he sends Uriah back to the front lines with a little note attached to his shirt so he doesn't forget it when, like what David comes home with. And he goes to the front lines and he hands it to the general and the general reads it and it is Uriah's death warrant. It says, put Uriah where the fighting is the most intense. And when the fighting is the most intense, withdraw the rest of the troops and allow Uriah to be killed. And this is David's scheme for covering up his sin, covering up his idolatry. And Uriah dies and David gets word. And David and Bathsheba mourn a bit, and then David marries Bathsheba. About the time the baby is to be born, there's a prophet that comes to Nathan. This is quite a long time that's passed, and David hasn't repented. David apparently hasn't even felt bad about it. I mean, the text doesn't tell us, but Nathan the prophet comes to David, and he says, You're a man of sin. You've done evil in God's sight. And this psalm, Psalm 51, is what David prays to God when he recognizes his sin. When he recognizes that at the core of his being, he is far from a spotless, perfect man. When he recognizes that there is evil and sin deep down inside of me, that I would go to such extent to sleep with a woman, that I would go to great lengths to cover it up, that I would go to great lengths to even murder a man who is loyal to me and my army, that I would go to this extent and sin against God. And my heart is so impure. And David prays this. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Maybe you've sung that song before. And that's the context of that song. That's the context of this prayer. David recognizes that something deep down inside of him is busted. It's broken. It's evil. It's heinous. It's horrible. You see, that's how you get a pure heart. Recognizing that something deep down inside of you is heinous, is horrible, is corrupted, is terrible, is evil. Crying out to God to purify, to clean. (laughs) Your heart. 
There's no amount of watching Oprah or Dr. Phil is going to fix this thing. You see, one of the tests of whether you have a pure heart is what Dr. Tim Keller calls, are you nice or are you new? New Niceness versus newness. And I love this test because he actually borrows this from this thinking from C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis says this. He says that God is not out to make nicer people, but to make new people. God is not out to make better people. He's out to make a whole new people. And so let's look at this test briefly. And ask yourself, am I nice or am I new? Because did you know the root word from nice is from French? And it means naive. You don't want to be nice. You don't want to be a naive person. You want to be a new person. And listen to this test. Nice people don't grow, new people do. Nice people don't grow, new people do. You see, a nice person's attitude towards truth is, well, I believe it. Yeah, that sounds like facts. That sounds good. Okay, cool. But a new person wants to submit to the truth and get it worked into their very lives. You see, a nice person says, oh, that truth is interesting. That is, that's fascinating. That's intellectually interesting. And I, 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 yeah, I believe that. But when push comes to shove, nice people won't always live the truth. A new person, when push comes to shove, will live the truth because they want the truth to to be inside of them and to be transforming them and making them a new person. You see, actually a nice person can grow, but they grow the same way a pile of rocks grows, by tossing more rocks on it. A new person grows organically. A new person all of a sudden they're surprised because they're able to do something or say something or, or be something that they never dreamed that they could be because they see that God is working inside of them. The Holy Spirit is transforming them and changing them from within. And there's no effort in it. It just happens because there's this God, the Holy Spirit, who was the very power that raised Jesus from the dead residing in them and changing them and transforming them. But nice people have to try harder at being nice. New people just grow. Are you nice or are you new? Nice people have no hope for failures where new people always do. Nice people have no hope for for, for sailors, for failures. But new people always do. You see, a nice person looks at difficult cases, people who are just mean and nasty and evil, and they go, well, there's no helping them. Anybody ever see that video, these are the people at Walmart? (laughs) A nice person, that's like one of their favorite songs, because they walk around Walmart and they see, oh, these are the people at Walmart. Or as... Tim Hawkins, that Christian comedian, says, they're good Lord people. Oh, good Lord, look at her. (laughs) Oh, good Lord. You see, nice people, they they mutter and they say, good Lord, look at how 
these are the people. Because a nice person, they only have two categories of people. There's nice people and there's bad people. That's the only two categories that nice people have for people. There's nice people and there's bad people. And nice people try really hard at being nice. But some people out there try really hard, but they fail. Well, they're bad people. They keep trying. They keep messing up. They're just bad. They can't help it. They're bad. If they were nice, they'd be nice. Because trying hard would make them nicer. But they try and they fail and they're just bad. But a new person sees that there's two types of people in the world. There's new people, there's renewed people, excuse me, and there's renewable people. There's people who have been renewed by the power of God in their lives. They're being transformed, they're being made new. And then there's all the people out there who haven't experienced that yet. They're renewable. There's hope for them. Because it's not about them trying harder. It's about Jesus reaching down into their lives and changing them. Because he did it for me. He can do it for them. A new, people, a new person understands, I was beyond God's help. I was beyond my own help. I was hopeless. But God reached in and saved me. And if he did it for me, he can do it for them. A new person looks at the inner cities and says, this can be fixed. A new person looks at America where it's at and says, this can be fixed. A new person looks at the most horrid country in the world or the biggest problems facing our nations or our world and says, these things can be fixed and will someday because the rightful king will come and these things will blossom because he's done it for me and he can do it for them. Nice people are hopeless people. New people are full of hope. Which are you? Are you nice or are you new? And and the last one. Nice people can be insulted. New people can't. I mean, if you're sitting there and you've been a little insulted feeling, you're a nice person. If you felt a little insulted, you can't tell me I can't say that there's bad people in the world. You can't tell me that I can't try hard to fix myself. Of course I can. I can try harder. I can get up tomorrow and I can try harder. I can do this. If being told those things insults you, you're a nice person, but you're not a new person. Because when a nice person is told they're proud, it makes them mad. But at the heart of being nice is is being a proud person. Because you've, you've gotten there with your own strength. No one's helped you out. You've helped yourself. Because after all, right? God helps those who help themselves. Which is a lie. And a nice person is a proud person. They think, I'm a decent person. I've worked hard. I've done my job. I'm doing pretty good. And who are you to tell me? But a new person is someone who says, I am, I am what I am strictly and completely and totally by the grace of God. If it wasn't for God's grace, I wouldn't be who I am today. That's what a new person says, that I have very little to do with how I'm turning out. That God is making me who I am, that he is transforming me at my very core about my heart. He's changing it. A nice person says, I 
just got to try harder. I'm a decent person. I'm doing a good job. You know, new people are like the 1969 Mets who had no business winning the World Series, but they did. New people have no business being Christians, but they are. New people have no business being saved, but Jesus does. New people have no business being renewed or changed or transformed. They don't merit it. It's by God's grace that they're changed, that they're transformed, and they win. And nice people, it's all about them and their effort and how good they clean up. Are you nice or are you new? You see, to have a pure heart, that old nasty one of yours has got to be replaced. That old broken down, ugly, gossipy, lusty, stinky, nasty heart of yours has got to be replaced. And if you are unwilling, you are not in the kingdom. Jesus says that. If you are unwilling to have a new heart placed inside of you, to have the very core of your being transformed and changed by the Holy Spirit, you are not in the kingdom. Now, I know this is hard news for some. I know that we would much rather think, I can do this on my own. I can fix myself. I can read some books. I can try harder. Many of us just want to think, if I look a certain part at certain times, I'll be okay. But it's like what Dallas Willard says, we have barcode theology. And we think that if we take the barcode off of the Thanksgiving ham and we stick it, or or excuse me, if we take the barcode off of a pound of hamburger and put it on the Thanksgiving ham, and we scan it and we get our Thanksgiving ham for a buck ninety-nine, we think God works the same way. If I just look good on the outside, it doesn't matter what's inside, God's going to scan me one day and say, oh, it's Thanksgiving ham. Thanksgiving turkey. It's not really a hamburger. It's not the way God works. He looks at the innards of you. At your core. And what does he see? What does he see? Does he see a heart that's being purified by the Holy Spirit? By somebody who cries out and says, create in me a pure heart. Or does he see somebody trying to be nice and clean up in their own way, in their own strength, and look kind of halfway sort of decent? Imagine a group of people who allowed the Holy Spirit to change them from the inside out. Imagine a group of people who became new, who weren't nice, but were new. A group of people like that could transform a town. A group of people like that could change a county. A group of people like that could change a state. A group of people like that could change the world. May it be us. May we be new. May the Holy Spirit create in us a clean heart. The 
Did you hear what the promise is? I didn't spend much time on it because the Bible is really foggy on what this means. They shall see God. They shall see Him. The pure in heart. And I didn't spend much time on that because, you know, in parts of Scripture it says, you know, we can't see Him. And then Jesus says we can if we're pure in heart. And I, I don't know what that means. All I do know is I know that it means that you will be welcomed into his presence if you are pure of heart. And I know that each and every single one of us will stand before God one day. Every single one of us will stand before God one day. Whether you believe that or not, you will. (laughs) And we'll remind you, see, it happened, notice. And the question is, will you be welcomed or not? Will you be welcomed or will you be found wanting? And if you are relying on your own purity, on you cleaning your act up and you trying to be perfect and you trying to be spotless and you trying really hard, you're not going to be welcomed. See, this is the heart of Christianity. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the heart of the cross. That if we place our trust in Jesus Christ, if we hunger and thirst for his righteousness, God will show us mercy. And he will begin the process of placing in us a pure heart. And we will receive a welcome when we see the face of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, pray that uh, we would hunger and thirst for righteousness because that is what ultimately fills us it's what creates mercy in us it's what creates a pure heart in us Lord I pray that if anyone has felt convicted today that they're not pure that they're trying to clean up but they just can't that they would place their faith, their trust in Christ. They would understand that through Jesus Christ they can have forgiveness of sins, that you will make them new and you will purify their hearts. For those of us who've heard this before, but we get confused and we forget that it's that it's about being new and not just being nice, that you would convict us of that that we would continue to truly trust the Holy Spirit and work with the Holy Spirit to be made new. Holy Spirit, make it so. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace, shalom, wholeness. May he create in you and me a pure heart. Amen. Amen.